if you've been here over the past several weeks, you're getting tired of hearing me say this, but we're in this series called Foundations, and if you've missed any of the past five weeks, that's okay. Um, I totally understand, but if you have time, I want to encourage you to, to go back and get caught up on the podcast, as we believe these are kind of foundational messages in the future of where we're headed as the Grove. Now, whenever I've been asked to speak at other churches, and they've given me free reign, um, I, I give them this message that I've, that I've chosen for our time together uh, today. So, today's conversation is really for the ten of you that maybe haven't heard this, this story. Um, for the rest of us, this is going to be review, and that's okay. Uh, the reason... The reason this has become kind of my go-to message is uh, for guest speaking is because I'm really I'm really passionate about this topic, and um, I know this from experience, fairly recent experience, that I'm not very good at it, and it can be a challenging thing to practice. So our text from Scripture is found in Acts chapter two. If you want to turn there, you can. Acts chapter two today. If you brought your Bible, and we were in this passage a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about the Holy Spirit. You might remember that. Um, But today we're going to look at this again, and I want you to notice something else today. So, the first time that I heard my neighbor talking about shed hunting, I thought he was talking about, like, shopping for a tool shed. And, uh... But every year, deer shed their antlers. You guys knew that, right? Everybody knows that? Yeah? Okay. Um, Brady, can you bring me that antler shed there? Just bring that up here to me. Sorry. There we go. Thank you. So, yeah, every year, deer uh, will shed these antlers. And, um, And so what we'll do is we'll try to go out. It's usually between February and April, and I'll take some of my boys out, and we'll go look for these antler sheds because if you wait too long, what can happen is the, the squirrels and the mice kind of chew on these a little bit. And um, so a few years ago, I took my boys and we went out and it was, uh, it was just the beginning of spring and, and the, the snow was starting to thaw. And I just knew like that, that receding snow, you'd start to see those tips of those antler sheds poking up. And I just thought, man, this would be a great time. We'd been hunting at my dad's property the previous fall We'd seen this nice buck. I mean, it had this huge, tall rack, and it had a little orange spot of fur between its antlers, so we, we nicknamed it Carrot Top. Now, you know, when you're talking to a hunter and they've, they've nicknamed their deer, like, that's a big deer, right? They've given their deer a name. Now, this particular parcel of land is only about 33 acres, but it is prime pass-through territory for big bucks. But we arrived at this property on this particular day, to find that the creek was flooded. So in the middle of this land is Haw Creek. And Haw Creek separates the north side from the south side. And on the south side is where all the deer are. It's where the timber is, it's where our tree stands are, it's where the food plots, the trail cameras, all of that. But the only way to access this land is from the north, the north side. And on this day, it was, it was flooded. Now I want you to try to visualize this creek, okay? If you were to go out there today and you were to stand right in the middle of it, it would only be about three or four feet deep, okay? 
And then if you kind of went up the sides of the ravine, it might be eight to 10 feet up the ravine. And then from, from like edge of field to edge of field might be 15 to 30 feet across. Okay, can you picture that? But on this day, there's this, and actually there's this low water bridge across there. So you can actually like walk across it and not hardly get your boots wet on, on most days. But on this day, with the snow melting and spring thaw in full effect, the water was all the way up to just about a foot from cresting over the top. So do the math. It's like 10 to 14 feet of water moving really, really fast. Like that's not a creek anymore. Like that's a river, right? But it was a little bit deceiving because these big ice chunks had kind of lodged loose and had all gotten like dammed up downstream. And, uh, and I'm talking ice chunks like as big as Tom Sawyer's raft, like eight inches thick and, and six to eight feet in diameter. And they were just kind of all settled down here uh, towards the end of our property. You really couldn't see that water moving so quickly underneath it. And, uh, but we've got to get across, we've got to get across this, this creek. And uh, my boys at the time were 14, 10, and eight. So they were pretty young. And, and as all good stories begin, I said, boys, watch this. I'm going to jump out on the ice and go from ice to ice to ice to the other side. And when I get across there, I want you to just follow exactly where I step. And so I hop out on the first one. And I literally, I mean, it was like I had to put my arms out because it was like, ooh, you know, I could feel the weight. So I jumped to the next one, to the next one, and then I jump up onto the bank. I make it. I turn around, and they're already doing that. And I kind of think to myself, like, man, I'm such a cool dad. Like, you know, this is, this is something they're going to tell their kids about someday. I mean, I just, I was kind of patting myself on the back a little bit, and I'm so adventurous. These boys are so lucky to have a cool dad like me. So we walked that timber for hours, and most of the land is on the south side. So we're on the south side of the property, but there's this ridge. And so you've got to imagine, you know, with the low winter sun, we're getting these long shadows. And so most of the land is like still lots of snow and like a thick layer of ice and then deep snow. And so we've got our, our boots on, and it's just like, you know, crunch, crunch. And we're doing this all throughout the timber. We covered, I mean, we scoured this timber. We were 20 feet apart. We weren't going to miss anything. We were going to find carrot tops, racks. And so we're looking through here. We spent hours up and down and throughout. We covered that whole territory, hours of tromping, nothing. And we're exhausted. And, and my boys, I mean, they're troopers. And, and I need to tell you, like at this time, they were survival experts, like they had read all the books on how to survive. They had all the stuff. Like, they could tell you, um, you know, what, what spiders to avoid. They could tell you what bugs you can eat. They could, they could make fish bones, or they could make fish hooks out of bird bones. Like, they were, if you were to ever be in a, in a plane crash, and, and you were to land successfully in the middle of nowhere, you would want one of my boys with you, because you would be fine. Like, they just, they just knew their stuff. But... So they're, they're enjoying this whole experience, but they're, they're pooped. I mean, they're tired. And the sun's starting to go down, and things are starting to get cold again. No antler sheds. We call it a day. We head back to the truck, and we get to the creek. And guess what? 
the ice has shifted. And now instead of raft-sized pieces of ice, um, they're really much smaller. And now I can see like how, how fast this water is really moving, and it's, it's intimidating. So we walk another mile of that creek, like back and forth, and um, we find this place that we can cross. We find a spot. Um, again, this time the ice is like half the size compared to what we crossed before. But I had to try, and so I said, boys, let me go first. And my oldest son, Sky, he's like, hey, Dad, give me your phone. I want to get a video of this. You guys want to see that video? No, we didn't take a video, because in my mind, I'm like, I don't, I don't, want, I don't want to die on video. Like, I don't want him to, to get that on video. Um, so I begin to cross the creek, and I get to about three feet from the edge, and all of a sudden, shlunk. That's what it sounds like for a 240-pound man to pencil dive into icy water. And I go down. And I lunge for the bank, and instantly I'm up to my chest in freezing cold water, and my hands are grasping for anything to grab onto on this muddy bank. And this muddy bank, it's starting to refreeze, and so I just remember it was like it's covered with this thin layer of ice, like the glazing on a donut, you know? And it's just like, it feels like it's cutting into my fingers and I'm doing everything I can using all of my upper body strength. I, I can't touch the bottom. It's, it's kind of sweeping me downstream. And I finally grab some small saplings and I'm struggling. And I'm actually starting to panic a little bit because it takes no time at all and I can't feel my legs. So I think they're moving and I think I'm trying to like use them. But as far as I can feel, like, it's just all arms. And, uh, and I'm starting to get scared. And I'm, and I'm not making any progress. I mean, falling through the ice is a terrifying experience. And just then, one of my survival experts calls out in a calm voice from the other bank, Hey, Dad, you've got 15 minutes until you die. Now, here's what I know. If you live long enough, we will all eventually find ourselves in a season of life where it feels like we're losing grip. And it feels like we're drowning in our circumstances. And two questions that will be the key to your survival are this. Who's walking with you? And what are they saying? Who's walking with you, and what are they saying? In that moment, my son was speaking truth, maybe, um, but there wasn't a whole lot of encouragement in that statement. There wasn't a whole lot of hope. It really matters who's walking with you, and what are they saying? And we can really boil this down to one question, and it's our question for today. Are you living in life-giving community? Are you in life-giving community? Notice I didn't say, are you attending church? Which is great, and I'm glad that you're here. But I would argue this is a more important question. Are you living in a life-giving community? That small circle of four, six, seven, eight people that you can trust to encourage you when you need encouraged, to rebuke you when you need rebuked, 
to walk with you and to stand on the bank of life and speak encouragement and truth. My son spoke truth, but he didn't speak hope. No matter how well you manage your life, you and I are very likely to have a moment, a day, a season where we feel like we are being swept away by the current of anxiety, fear, busyness, worry, regret, shame, hurt, confusion, on and on the list goes. And here's what I know from, from very recent experience. It's in those seasons, there is something in us that is drawn to isolation and seclusion. I mean, it's like a moth to a flame. Like, we are compelled in those moments to separate ourselves from the very life-giving community that God has created us for. And you know as well as I do that our, our spiritual and emotional survival is dependent upon having people we trust close enough to speak truth and life. Doing life in community is, is how God intended it. You and I were created for community. And I think that's a big reason why some of you chose the name the Grove Community Church. Like, just a constant reminder that doing life in community with other believers is what we're created for. In fact, it's in doing life in community, within our community, that becomes the greatest witness to the lost in our community. I really believe that. See, doing life in community is more than just sitting in rows listening to one guy talk for an hour. Truly doing life in community involves sitting in circles, listening to each other. Has anyone been in a small group before? Is this... Is this familiar vocabulary for, for everyone when we talk about small groups? Listening to each other, asking questions, wrestling with Scripture, watching football, eating brownies, playing cornhole. And I can't prove that last part from Scripture, but I, I'm pretty sure I'm speaking for the Holy Spirit when I, when I mention dessert during small group. Today I want to look at three reasons why doing life in community with others is so important. And here right up front, there's no punchline at the end, okay? Right up front, we know we're created for community because, number one, it's what Jesus did. Secondly, it's who God is. Thirdly, it's what he's called us to do. If you're taking notes today, you can write that down, leave a little space between each. Community is what Jesus did. It's who God is, and it's what we're called to do. We find all three of these truths in Acts chapter 2. Let's look together, or you can just feel free to listen as I read. Acts chapter 2, Luke records for us the day of Pentecost. You can remember this from a couple weeks ago. Um, so this is the day Jesus had promised right before his ascension. He said that he would need to return to the Father so the Father could send the Holy Spirit. And he begins this chapter by saying, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, gathered in community. All right? You're going to get tired of that word today. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And Luke goes on to describe what the manifestation of the Holy Spirit for all those who were present looked like. I mean, Luke describes this manifestation to be so visibly bewildering 
My translation calls it that some visiting Jerusalem that day were utterly amazed, while others thought, they must be filled with new wine. Like, they must be drunk. (laughs) Then, starting in verse 14, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. And Peter goes on to preach what was probably his first real sermon. And I love that Luke makes this statement. But Peter standing with the eleven. Why is that significant? Because there were like 120 of them in attendance that day. But Luke's description in this passage acknowledges that Jesus had a group. Jesus had a community. We know them as the disciples. And you cannot read the Gospels without recognizing that Jesus had a small group. When Jesus' ministry began, he didn't invite the masses to join him. He invited 12 men of various ages with different jobs and backgrounds and temperaments. Some would die for him. One would betray him. And it was right before this that we're reading in Acts that they actually, they replaced him. Um, So, all of them were invested in by Jesus. And after Jesus' ascension, the disciples were able to stay strong in their faith because their faith was connected to him and to each each other. And we see this all throughout the Gospels. While he would teach to the the, the large crowds and he would heal the sick, he chose to focus on his small group of 12 individuals. So, community must be important because it's what Jesus did. Let's keep going. Peter delivers this sermon, quoting from the prophet Joel and King David. Now, this is the day that he prophesied that he prophesied would come and that um, in his sermon, he says, referring to God, verse 32, this Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Do You see it? <laughs> it's right there. Community must be important because it's who God is. We see in this passage that God is triune in nature. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons, and I don't claim to understand it, and that's okay, but we can see that community is a part of God's character. When it says in Psalm 139, 13, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I just imagine a holy conversation between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit discussing the gifts and talents and the unique calling each human being will possess in order to bring glory to God and further his kingdom. Does that that change anything to know that before you were born, God talked about you? God was the first small group, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together in community. It's who God is. Peter wraps up his sermon with these words. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I love how Luke says in verse 40, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. In the Greek, That means he preached for 30 minutes and then the worship team led them in a closing hymn. No, I'm kidding. It's probably a nice way of saying 
that the preacher went a little long, <laughs> but it didn't matter. What mattered was that about 3,000 people were baptized and added to their number that day. That's awesome. And then look what, he, look what they did. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Community is what we're called to do. I mean, I love hanging out at church for an hour every Sunday. But trust me, they didn't gather daily as a group of 3,000. They gathered in groups small enough to break bread in each other's homes. And it's what we're called to do. Over and over again, we're encouraged to love one another, to serve one another. There's 59 one another's in the Bible. Like John 13, 34, where Jesus tells his disciples, a new command I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And here's what's assumed about one another. Here's what's assumed about one another passages. You must be in community with one another. Listen to how the writer of Hebrews encourages community amongst believers. He says this, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I especially love this translation of that passage. So let's do it. Full of belief, confident that we're presentable inside and out. Let's keep a firm grip on the promises that keep us going. He always keeps his word. Let's see how inventive we can be in encouraging love and helping out. That's awesome. When's the last time your group, your, your group of, of people that you hang out with got together and with a whiteboard started dreaming of inventive ways to encourage loving one another? He goes on, not avoiding worshiping together, as some do, but spurring each other on, especially as we see the big day approaching. Why is community important? Because it's what Jesus did. It's who God is, and it's what we are called to do. Two critical questions that will be the key to your survival are, who's walking with you? And what are they saying? But there's another question, and it's probably the first. Who are you following? Who's walking with you? Critical question. What are they saying? The answer to that is crucial. Who are you following? The implications are consequential. And the consequences? Eternal. Who are you following? Jesus has an open invitation to all. His invitation to you is follow me. Who are you following? Is the most important question you can answer because there are eternal implications to that answer. 
If you've never accepted God's free gift of salvation through Jesus, you've never said yes to the invitation of Jesus to follow him. I'll give you a chance to do that in just a moment. As I'm hanging on for dear life in the creek that day and I hear my son say, you've got 15 minutes till you die. I remember this thought going through my mind. Do I spend my final 15 minutes trying to get out of this creek or do I just turn around and give my boys some final wisdom before I leave this world? I I actually had that thought. (laughs) I didn't think I could pull myself out and I didn't want my kids to risk trying to help me. I truly thought about how to spend my last 15 minutes of my life. And then I realized I wasn't in a very credible position to deliver any type of wisdom. So obviously I didn't give up. And by the grace of God, I was able to pull myself out. I told the boys to head south. I'd grab the truck. I'd meet them at a certain farmer's house. And when we're headed home and I started thinking about what if what if I'd made it across the creek? And then one of my boys had fallen in while following my example. I'm almost certain it would have ended tragically. Here I'm setting an example for my boys. You're you're supposed to get smarter as you get older. That was so foolish. How could I how could I have not seen that potential risk? So in the truck, I turned to him. I said, boys, please don't ever do anything like that. I'm sorry. I'm embarrassed to say that is one of the three most foolish things I've ever done in my life. And then my youngest pipes up from the back seat and says, what are the other two, daddy? And I said, boy, you will never know this side of heaven. Oh, man. Don't make the foolish decision of doing life alone. We were created for community. So how is this foundational? What do we what do we do with this? Is there a next step? Yes. Pray about starting a small group. And if you'd like to be in a group or you'd like to facilitate a small group, I would love to help. I was with a group of pastors on Thursday and and one of them asked the question, how do we how do we persecution proof the church? If there's a day that is coming where we won't be allowed to meet here for whatever reason, COVID, whatever, what happens to the church? I really believe that if we can help you start or get into a healthy small group, a day may not be too far away where we can say, You know what? If you and your family can only choose to attend one gathering this week, we want it to be with your small group. That's the church. That's how to persecution proof the church.